to the latest edition of IIEA Insights with me, Dan O'Brien. The history of Ireland's public finances is not a boring one. Having become one of the most indebted states in the world in the 1980s, there then followed a period of astonishing economic growth in the 1990s and 2000s, when public debt levels came down to comparatively low levels. Then, the property market collapsed, causing a depression and the banking crisis. The state ended up in an international bailout. In the decades since that ignominious episode, the economy has grown strongly and the public finances are now on a firmer footing in the short term at least. Among the lessons learned from the crash was that best practice in the management of the public finances should be put in place. One aspect of that was an independent budgetary watchdog that, that a, an independent budgetary watchdog should be established. I'd like to welcome the chair of that body, the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council to Insights today. Sebastian Barnes has been a member of the council since its establishment a decade ago and is currently serving a second term as its chair. He also works in the economics department at the OECD in Paris. So with that, uh, Sebastian, I'd like to thank you uh, for joining us and um, looking forward to, to the discussion. Hi, Dan. Thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it, too. Okay, as we'll probably spend most of the conversation discussing what can be improved further in the management of the public finances, let's start with some of the good news that's out there. Uh, so far, the economy has come through multiple shocks in the 2020s, uh, and it's come through those shocks astonishingly well. Um, also, the risks of the sort of state funding crisis experienced in 2010 have much receded. When, when you look at this, this picture, what, what, what are the most important factors you see in driving this comparatively good performance? So I think first thing, we have just been a bit lucky, right? So as we went and it was COVID happened, which we weren't expecting, we were lucky that the vaccines came along much faster than we did and it turned out to be easier to manage. You know, last autumn, things were looking very worrying in terms of the energy crisis. Now we still have a war on European soil and that has a big impact, but you know, the winter we, we've got through that too. Um, but I think if you look, take a slightly bigger picture, I mean, I think, Globally, right, we've benefited from various things. Low interest rates has played a really key part for everyone, right? For the past couple of years, credits essentially cost nothing. Um, and that's had a really big impact on the public finances here and everywhere else as well. Um, and then I think there's a sort of general factor. Um, uh, yeah, so gradually, I think, generally, I think countries have come through kind of better than we expected. I think one very Irish specific factor is we've been very, we've been very lucky. We've been very lucky because we've been boosted by the activities of the international sector, by the ICT firms, by the pharma firms. Those firms have just done incredibly well um, during the pandemic. But even actually, if you go back even to the banking crisis, those kinds of activities were some of the things that helped us to recover when domestic demand was, was really weak. So basically, we've been lucky, which is yeah, kind of always the best thing to be. But I think there's also a part of good management in that, in the sense that if you look at 2019, the budget balance was more or less back in surplus as we went into it. We've done the right things in the in the years between. We've actually done the right things during the crisis. We've had a big temporary expansion in fiscal policy, which has allowed people to manage COVID without destroying the economy, which helped people through the energy crisis. But those have been temporary measures and they've been taken place within the framework. So there is also a sense in which by rebuilding the fiscal space that we needed, rebuilding the buffers that we had, uh, lost during the banking crisis. We were able to manage these things well, and we've had actually a pretty good framework for managing it. And so I think, you know, it's a mixture of luck and skill, um, like many things in life. On that specific issue of management, um, best practice of the management of, of, of public finances, where, where would you put Ireland now looking at peer countries across Europe? Um, Mid-table, if, if you could look at it on a sort of league basis, if, if that's possible. I think we're sort of moving in the right direction, probably to the 
probably moving to the Premier League, but we're not we're not quite there yet, I think. So if you look back historically, as you said, we've had the roller coaster experience of the public finances. I think Ireland is a country where, though we've mismanaged things badly in some cases, there is a sort of culture that is interested in fiscal sustainability. So if you um, I think I wasn't born when France uh, last had a fiscal surplus, right? We're not that sort of a country. Now, of course, in the early 2000s, it was sort of easy to run a surplus, but we actually did do it. Um, and we're probably one of the countries that has the best compliance with EU fiscal rules. Now, not always for the right reasons, but you know, so there is this kind of culture here. But we've also had this sort of very short termist culture that every budget is when we decide what to do. Um, and that's a framework. That's not a very good framework. So you easily get led off track. Things are good now. You decide to spend the money. And then a few years down the track, you're not so, you know, you're in trouble. Um, and so it's really been that short termism, that year to year planning, and then kind of relying on the European rules, even if they weren't always very appropriate. Uh, so we're sort of doing it what economists would call in a discretionary way from year to year, the finance minister will decide what to do. And that's not served us particularly well. I think we've now got a movement. So on the one hand, we've had the fiscal council that's been here for, for more than a decade. Uh, the government has um, now got a spending rule, um, which was first talked about in 2019. We, we, we've not got very far with that, and then we've just very difficult circumstances to play that, but the government has followed that, and I think that's been really helpful. Um, the question really is institutionalizing that as not just being a one-off. We've had periods in the past where we had fiscal rules for a year or two, and then we sort of left them. So I think if we can institutionalize that, we'll really be up with the best countries, which are people like the Netherlands, like Sweden, uh, like Denmark, countries which actually have really good public services and really, you know, socially very strong, but also have relatively low public debt and are good at managing these things. And the real question is whether we want to take this medium term, long term planning seriously, or whether we want, we, we lapse back into this you know, big fight over the budget every October and we take things year by year and then we get into a mess. Before going into some, some of the more detail on that, one of the things in your recent report that you, you mentioned that small economies in the Eurozone might have to run very large both surpluses and deficits bigger than traditionally they've, they've done. What sort of size do you envisage in terms of a surplus and in terms of the political sustainability of running a five, six, seven percent of, of economic output deficit? Is, is, is that, do you see countries where that's been achievable before? So, so I think it's a slightly difficult area. So I think the, the basic way fiscal policy is designed in most places, if it's designed properly, is to just be neutral over the cycle. So, for example, you have the spending rule, you increase spending steadily each year, revenue moves around, because, you know, revenue will fall in the downturn, so you end up with a budget balance, and um, in the upturn, you'll run, you'll run some kind of surplus because um, revenues are up, but spending is still growing at the steady rate. An open question is really how to manage a more active policy than that. So you could think if there was a really severe... Irish specific downturn, so the European Central Bank wouldn't be helping us. Now, would we need a stronger, more aggressive um, stance than that? Um, and equally, if we have a really strong overheating, you know, what would the budget balance have had to be in 2007 you know, to, to avoid getting into trouble in the banking crisis? That's an area we know less about. It's a question that some people are discussing now uh, in Ireland. I think the council's view is that we're not quite there yet. In terms of how big the surplus would have to be, um, I think it really depends i mean i think it could be pretty big but obviously it's difficult to you know politically to run a very big surplus now actually what's going to happen in ireland in the next couple of years at least if the forecasts from the department of finance are right is a fairly unusual situation basically because of the external sector and multinational sector so we could be having headline balances of five percent of, of gdp of gni star right which which is a very big surplus by most standards 
Now, of course, within that, about three percentage points would be coming essentially from the, what the Department of Finance calls the excess corporation tax. That's a bit of an Irish specific thing. So there are special reasons why we have to be careful about that. So we'd still be running a surplus of around you know, 2% in underlying terms. Um, and maybe that's the kind of order that needs to be sustained. I mean, I think you can't, ultimately you want fiscal policies to be able to help balance the economy. And we've seen that very spectacularly with, with the weak economic weakness in the past couple of years. You also need to be able to balance the economy in good times to stop overheating. Exactly how far you go in that, I mean, there's probably no perfect fiscal policy, but I think it's not unreasonable for a country to think that in the good times you might be running a sort of underlying budget surplus of a couple of points of GDP, and that allows you to run a deficit of the same magnitude uh, on the other side. So that's kind of, I think, the kind of ballpark we're in. And it's probably worth noting that, that you folks at the council view that the underlying budgetary position is, is still in deficit, that when you factor out those things like corporation tax, that um, it's, it's not nearly as rosy as, as some of the um, national conversation has has um, sort of morphed into it in recent times. Um, can I, I just put a, a, a couple of paragraphs from, from the recent, most recent assessment you folks have made? Um, over the years, much of the council's advice in the area of the budgetary framework, such as enhancing the design of the rainy day fund, improving budgetary forecasting, applying the budget ceilings properly, debt rules has gone unheeded. Um, is there, a question of capacity within the relevant government departments to do to make improvements in areas such as budgetary forecasting and preventing unbudgeted increases in spending as, as happens quite frequently pretty much every year. So I think it, it's a kind of half glass full half empty kind of situation. So I think this really comes back to this question we were discussing earlier about whether fiscal policy is run by discretion, you just sort of take decisions as you go or whether you have a proper framework. Um, and the council has always argued that a framework would, would be more sustainable, it would be more credible, it would be more, more transparent. And I think we're at this sort of intermediate point where they have made progress. And a really significant thing they did this year is for the first time, their macroeconomic forecast, their forecast for GNI staff consumption, uh, go out to 2030. So they go out seven years. And that's really helpful because you can see what they think is going to happen to the economy. And that, you know they basically expect, as we do, you know, growth to slow over the next couple of years. And that's an important thing to know if you're thinking about the public finances. So that's good. Um, and you know, the spending rule is big progress. And the Department of Finance put out a very significant paper on a long-term savings vehicle that would really revamp the whole rainy day funds um, kind of design. So we think that's very welcome. That's a good idea that should be implemented. Um, but then there's the weaknesses, which are longer standing. Um, and those weaknesses are a lot around departmental budget ceilings. So the, the government legally has to set out these ceilings. Actually, sometimes it hasn't even met its legal obligation. But those ceilings are just a kind of paper exercise. But what they should really be doing, say in an area like health, is saying, here's the health budget for the next five years. To the health people, you figure out how what you're going to deliver and how much it's going to cost. But this is how much money you have. But instead, we have this sort of not very credible system. It gets reset from year to year. Um, we obviously had this bad experience up to 2019. I think uh, last years before that, uh, the health overspends were five or 600 million a year on top of the budget. They would always appear kind of at the end of the year. Um, now, after COVID, it's obviously very hard to know what's been, been going on in health, but we've obviously heard stories recently that some of these pressures are coming back. And that's not totally surprising because if you look at the way the budgeting is done, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So if you look at the budget, it's not consistent with what they plan for health, for example. It's not consistent with the fact they're planning to hire a lot more people and they're going to be big pension costs associated with those people. So it's like the initial budgets aren't set in a way that's really realistic. 
to maintain the current level of service. Uh, and that's very unhelpful, right? There should be a more honest and open conversation uh, and a realistic budget, should, health budget should be set, and then it should be enforced. And I think one of the things, I don't think it's a question of capacity. I think it's a question of um, bureaucratic inertia, shall we put it like that? You know, I think these things have always been done like that. And there's a reluctance, I think, to a move to a system that is more transparent and, and more robust and just different. And that's partly because there's a reluctance to give up discretion. So I think the idea of not really having departmental ceilings is that it kind of makes it easier to shuffle money around at a later date, which I think you can still do in a rules-based framework. But of course, you have to put your hands on the table and say, for example, you know, we're going to spend less in this area because we're spending more on health at the moment. And those are the things that aren't really happening. And I think they're really important from a wider public policy perspective in terms of people making choices as well. It's really clear you have more of this, you know, kind of where, what are you going to have less of or where's the money going to come from? And I think we're not quite there yet. And I think as we were coming back in terms of the league table, there's a real opportunity with the spending rule. You could have this high level spending rule. The government says for the next three, you know, three years, this is what spending is going to look like in total. And then this is how it looks at the level of all the departments. And now they haven't done that second piece. But if you had that, you would have a, you know, a real Premier League um, kind of, uh, and top of the table, right? Not the, uh, not the other clubs. You would really be, a, you know, you'd be in Europe, I think, in terms of the, the quality of the institution. So we're not that far away from that. But, but it's, it requires a change in mindset and it's a change in the way of, of doing things. So I totally take your point about the inertia part. And I think that that is a difference between some of the smaller Northern European countries. There's much less inertia in the system. But, but another difference in, in my experience is that politically, there is a bigger constituency in those countries for uh, reducing debt for sound public finances. That's quite limited in, in this country where the political system is more about competing to who can uh, who can give away the most. Uh, do you have a concern, particularly because I know you, IFAC has noted that since 2015, there hasn't been an underlying improvement in the finances. So underlying, of course, we all know revenues have been flying in, but in terms of underlying position, you folks have, have noted that, that the improvement stopped as long ago as 20, uh, 2015. There is a perception now that there's a vast amount of money guaranteed to come in. Is this something that sort of worries you? And in terms of communicating to, to voters and, and the public, uh, it, are there better things that yourselves could do in terms of communicating uh, the situation to the public? So hopefully our existence does help to, to show, these, show these kinds of um, trade-offs. It's something we do talk about quite a lot. And I think the... Ultimately, the sustainability of the public finance is a bit like if you look at a bank or something like that. You can look at its balance sheet, but you probably won't understand it if you don't understand the decision-making processes that are leading to whether how it takes decisions, right? And it's a bit like that with the government and the public finances. And so how those decisions are taken, how those political choices are taken is really key. And having the institutions that encourages those choices and those conversations to be had with a medium-term focus is really, really important. So the spending rule, yeah, in a way, should function like that. Instead of having an argument about how much money you can spend in this budget, where the temptation is always going to be to spend too, spend or too much or cut taxes too much, um, you, you agree basically what that's going to be. And then within that, you think about the choices that you have. And that's something we need to become much better at. And, and it's partly because the situation is changing. We've been warning about this for a while. But in the last, pre-2019, basically, we're in a situation where the economy was growing quite fast. And basically what was happening is that every autumn you would have a budget where you'd have a certain amount of what was called fiscal space to spend, which was the amount, the difference between how much tax revenue was going to increase 
uh, and how much the government had to spend basically to maintain the current levels of services. So there was about like a sort of billion you could play with every year. And then there were some other margins of adjustment. So on budget day, the government sat there and they had a number of things that they had amount of space, fiscal space, they could say, we're going to spend it on more spending or lower taxes or whatever. We're not, when we come out of the crisis, we're not in that world anymore, basically because of the aging of the population is eating up a lot of that space. And so basically, even if we wanted to maintain the same level of, co co uh, of government services we had before, because of aging, uh, that's, actually in that's actually increasing more than the amount that revenue is increasing each year. So the government, instead of having fiscal space, is having to find some space to accommodate it. And so it's got no real choice but to make that to try and find a way through changing taxes or through changing spending to do that. And that's really the new logic that we're in. And we have to start the conversation really from that position. And we also know that over the horizon, there are two massive challenges to public finances. One is the aging of the population, which is really starting to kick in. As I said, it's, you know, it's a relevant issue for this October's budget, never mind what happens in the 2030s and 40s. Uh, and climate change, where we're much less certain about how much it's going to cost, but it's pretty likely to have a very, very big fiscal impact. And all of that speaks to the fact, on the one hand, that we need to manage the public finances now in quite a prudent way, but actually really we need to be improving our planning and we need a kind of proper view of how to do this. And I think one of the difficulties for Ireland um, is that if you look at the last 25 years, you say it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride, but it's also, if you, if in the mid nineties, Ireland was quite a poor country, basically still at that point, right? And then we went through this sort of Celtic tiger years, then we went through the housing boom, then we went through the bust, then we had a sort of period of a few years and now we've had COVID and, then it, and the energy crisis. We, we, we don't really know what normal is. Um, and I think there's some really big choices that many countries are facing. Basically, do you want a country with relatively low taxes, but you accept the public services that comes with that? Or do you want a system where you know, there's more social spending, there's more spending on the climate and all these kinds of things, but you have to accept basically that taxes will have to be higher than they are today. And that's a really fundamental question. It's not the fiscal council's role to make that judgment. It's a very political judgment, of course, and it's a judgment for society. But you know, we really do need to be thinking about it in those terms. And we don't really have an answer to that. It's not like we can say, we'll go back to what we did 10 years ago, and that was fine, because it probably isn't. Ireland has changed too much over that time. So that's really, really the fundamental question. Okay, so I was, I was, you kind of covered this question, but I think it's worth reading out this, this sentence from your, your latest report. Uh, for, for those uh, joining today. You, you, the, the council writes, the political system will need to make more difficult choices than it has had to face outside crisis times at any point over the past generation. Fundamental questions about the size and role of the state, the design of the tax system, and the efficiency of public spending can no longer be avoided. Uh, stark, stark words, uh, which I think you, you put in, in other words just now. Um, in, in terms of the debate here, an awful lot of it is about how much is spent rather than the outputs it generates. So it's, it's more input is a, is a kind of virtue signaling for governments to say we're doing something rather than, than outputs. Specifically in terms of uh, housing, as, as you know, the housing issue is probably the number one political issue here. You, you recently mentioned again in your report that quote, additional investment may not provide value for money because of the uh, constraints within the, the construction sector. Would you be at all optimistic that the sharp slowdown in the commercial real estate uh, building sector could allow uh, workers and resources be freed up to move into, into residential, thereby boosting residential supply? I mean, I think that would be the ideal scenario, right? That, um, I mean, there is a real constraint in the number of people in the country who are uh, able to build houses. 
um, you know, the, the unemployment rate in that sector is basically nothing. Um, and so, and you do need a lot more workers if you're going to build these houses, right? And that's the sort of fundamental question. There's a whole sort of other things around housing, but ultimately that's the fundamental question. There aren't enough houses, uh, who's going to build them? Uh, now in the ideal scenario, right, people would move from other things like commercial activity into, uh, into building. Whether that ideal scenario happens or to what extent it does, I think it's hard to say, right? They're not necessarily the same skills. Um, there's probably a set of other things that need to happen. Um, so, you know, maybe that's going to help. Um, we'll see what happens, right? I think at the moment, we've had quite a lot of surprises on house building on both sides since we've been coming out with the pandemic. Um, I, to me, it seems a bit of a mystery what, what's going on there. Um, but it's clear that we do need, need a lot more houses and that, that it's, it's, you know, there's a big constraint there linked to the number of people. Uh, of course, one of the channels in the past that we've used a lot is, is inward migration. Of course, those people would then go and put additional pressure on rents as well. So it's a, it's a, it's a very complicated problem to solve. I think it is important for people to understand that whatever happens, it's going to take a long time. Um, uh, and yeah, you can easily understand people's impatience, but it's just, you know, there is just a period of time it takes to build houses and the capacity of the industry, even in the best case, to sort of scale up. So, you know, it's, it's tough, but unfortunately, I mean, the mistake was really made in the prior years. And I think this comes back, I mean, something actually the council usually wouldn't weigh into particular spending choices. But there was a period in the you know, 2014, 2015, when we did explicitly warn public spending, public investment is too low. You know, it's just, you know, whatever you think public investment should be, this, what we're seeing here is too low uh, because it's gonna limit supply capacity in, in the future. And that's exactly uh, what we're seeing. Now, now, in truth, you know, the government is actually spending record amounts on investment and has the big investment program they have is, you know, even relative to the scale of the economy is, is the biggest, most sustained investment program uh, in the history of the state. That's obviously facing many um, supply constraints. And you know, there's a question about how much, whether they're going to be able to, to deliver all that. But, you know, there is a lot of public investment going on, but it's going to take a lot of time. And it comes back to this long-term planning issue as well, right? I think people should have been thinking in the mid uh, you know, 2010s, you know, investment's too low and this is really going to bite us. And we need to sort out these, you know, these housing issues should have been sorted out more aggressively then. And I think it shows, you know, if you just do things year by year, you think we'll do a bit more, hopefully things will get better. But, you know, some things you really need to plan for. And I think that's a good example of what happens when you don't. Another one, uh, you've already alluded to it, and it's it's a huge challenge increasingly in almost every country in the world, is, is the aging of populations um working age populations in many countries are already declining um it's it's a longer term term challenge for for everyone um but could i put it that maybe it's not as awful here for a number of reasons um we've had levels of immigration that keep beating expectations uh one issue that uh, that helps in the in the medium term anyway uh policy measures like auto enrollment in in the pension system uh people retiring later just today um a set of figures were released by the central statistics office showing employment uh growth by age group and it showed that the over 65s um have by far the strongest uh, uh growth in, in employment over the past year uh, and that as people live longer, they will work longer. And we're seeing that. We're seeing, you know, early retirement is declining um, and more people are working, European-wide phenomenon, but it's 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 being marked here as well. That that perhaps the the aging issue won't be as problematic as as is feared. 
so, so I think it is. I think it is actually a really major issue. We're lucky that we're, Ireland has a relatively young population, so we're we're we're, we're like twenty years behind a lot of countries. But if you see what's happened to them, um, we would do well to learn lessons from that. I think. Um, and I think if you look at the statistics, now Ireland will end up being older as a country than any European country is today. So this gives you an idea of the scale of these huge changes, right? And they're not just economic, public finance. As you say, it's a really social thing. People's behaviour is going to change, and all these kinds of things. But a lot of that stuff is actually built into the kind of models that the fiscal council has developed to think about this. And even if you look at that, you see there is a really major challenge coming in the years ahead. And one of the big challenges is ultimately political. So the um, raising the pension age is something that's incredibly unpopular. Um, there's also a lack of understanding in some ways about aspects of the pension system uh, as well. So there are really two things going on. One is that people are living longer. So life expectancy increases at 65 increases by about a year every um, six years, I think. So you can basically expect to live five or six years longer than your parents, which is a huge, huge change. Um, but the other thing is that we also have you know, unevenness in the population. So we had this baby boom in the 70s and 80s, people that didn't necessarily end up um, emigrating as they would have done in the past. And so if you look at the biggest kind of five-year cohort, it's 50% bigger than the smallest one. So, so the impact of these different numbers of young and old people is actually bigger than the, the effect of the aging. And of course, the two things come together. So there's a really, really big pressure there. And that second effect is kind of harder for people to get their heads around a bit. And I think when the counts, you know, and so the, you know, there are only a couple of options to deal with it, right, in terms of state pension. Um, one is you know, raise pension age. Another one is to lower pension benefits, which no one seems very keen on doing. Um, and the other one is raising contributions. Um, so it's, it's, it's not a particularly politically palatable um, set of choices. There was a plan to raise the pension age, which the government has decided not to follow. And that was also, and the Pensions Commission came along. That gave advice basically to use some combination of all of these things. That advice was largely ignored on, on the key things. And the government strategy now seems to be based on raising PRSI contributions. Now, in the short run, there's loads of money in the social insurance fund because unemployment is at a very low level, probably not very sustainable at that level. Um, but eventually, the kind of PRSI increases you'd have to see are enormous. So if you look at the, um, uh, we did some simulations on this. So if you take the employer-employee uh, PRSI rates together, they add up to 15% today. Um, but they would go up in the 2030, uh, 2040s, I think, to about 22, 23%, which is a huge increase in taxation. If you want to do that in cash terms for someone average wages of around 30K, that's about a thousand euros every year they would have to pay to get essentially exactly the same benefits as their parents would have done. So there's a big question as to whether that is a credible policy. And what the council, the council looked at this section, we tried to think, well, do other countries manage this better? The answer is in a lot of cases, no. Um, but, we, we, but there are some that do manage it properly. And Canada is a really outstanding example. And what they do, the problem we, that we have in the Irish system is that the um, it's the social insurance fund, they try and balance it a couple of years ahead, right? So try and keep it balanced, look how much parasite contributions people are going to pay, how much pensions and unemployment there is, and try and keep it balanced. But the problem is we know the really big costs are coming 20, 30 years down the line. Um, but and of course, if you're just balancing it from year to year, you're ignoring the fact there's this really big cost coming down the line. Um, so what they do in Canada is they plan it with like a 75 or 100 year horizon, which is what you should do because there are people who are entering the system today who are going to be claiming pensions in the next century. It's a really, really long-term problem or long-term sort of dynamic. Um, and they basically look ahead, which is, I think, essential. I think it's hard to argue why you wouldn't do that. 
And if you do that, what, you, what they do is they set the PRSI rate at a constant level, the level they think you could hold for the next century, so everyone will pay the same rate and sustain the pension system. And if you did that, actually, it turns out you don't need to raise PSR rates by anything like as much. So if you raise them over the next five years by, say, two percentage points or something like that, you would, without doing anything else, you would pretty much make put the pension system on a sustainable basis. And that's partly because you're taxing the big generation of baby boomers who are currently, paying, who are currently in the system. If you wait for them to retire, it's much harder to, to get them to contribute. So it, again, it comes down to long-term planning. Um, other countries haven't done that. And then you get into a very difficult situation where, you're, where every year you're having to find a huge amount of money to, to pay for pensions. And what you see, you know, if you look at some countries in Europe, you end up not spending anything on investment, nothing on education, whatever. The whole budget is basically being eaten up by pensions. And we basically have the opportunity, because we still have a fairly young population, to save. And of course, we can use some of the corporation tax money for that as well so that we don't get into that situation. So our advantage is maybe not that we, we have the young population per se, it's really that we can learn from other people's lessons. And the more old people there are, if you look at Japan, this is an example, now, once old people are a really big share of the electorate, it's very, very hard to touch any of this stuff. Um, so we really need to anticipate it. Yep, definitely many challenges, but just to, 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 to conclude, what, one of the sort of reasons I'm slightly more optimistic on this is that I lived in Italy 30 years ago, and Italy already had a massive pensions bill. Most of its welfare spending went on pensions. It was about 15% of GDP, and there was this constant worry this was about to, uh, the pensions time bomb was exploding, and they have just salami sliced it over the years. Um, so, you know, that's, I suppose, the reason why I'm slightly more, more upbeat. Um, on the other big sustainability question, uh, moving to meet our climate change targets uh, at a European level, uh, how costly do you see that being uh, for Ireland in comparison with, with other countries? And specifically, one of the issues that's come up of late here uh, has been in the agricultural sector. We've got a very big, as you know, um, beef and dairy herd, that reducing that herd would be uh, a, necessary or uh, contribute to reducing emissions. Arguments, particularly in the industry, is that if you reduce the production of food, somebody else will produce it and the impact for the global global emissions levels will be uh, possibly even positive in the sense that if, if the if the meat is produced, dairy is produced elsewhere with higher emissions, then it will actually have a negative impact uh, on emissions and a negative impact on the rural Irish economy. Any thoughts on, on those that bigger issue and then the more specific one? So in terms of the, um, the agricultural side, it is really costly, it's really complex, right, because of this international leakage. And I think it's an issue that does need to be sorted out uh, at international level, right? Um, uh, and real, real thought needs to go into that. Um, it's really complicated. It's trade in these things very complex. So I, I, I don't know enough about it, really. But the but in terms of the fiscal costs, that, that's also an area that we don't really know enough about. Um, the council's actually working, doing some analysis there. But I think we're, I think we're way behind in terms of, uh, as, as we've heard from the Climate Advisory Council and others, um, in terms of progress, but also in terms of the thinking that goes on behind about how we're going to achieve these targets. Um, so we don't really have a good handle on how much it's going to cost. We do know that I mean, a lot of the investment in the, in the National Development Plan is climate related. So presumably that's all going to help. Um, there is also, but we don't really know so much about the current spending size. Um, one of the biggest aspects of that is going to be if we all move to electric cars, we're going to lose a big source of tax revenue from, from fuel on excise duty on fuel and, and, and diesel. 
So that's something the government's going to have to find the money for, and it's pretty significant. Um, then there's also the cost of managing the transition. So, for example, if agriculture with the change rate, it's hard to imagine that wouldn't be done without some government supports. There are also government supports for, for, for um, insulation and these kinds of things. So there's really a lot of things that need to be worked out. Um, and you know, the Fiscal Council is, is thinking about these things, but we're not the experts in these subjects. So there doesn't really need to be a stepping up of, of the thinking and the modeling and the planning, you know, how we're we actually going to meet these targets in an efficient way, and what's it going to cost for the public finances, and how are we going to factor that in. But, the, but for the moment, it's definitely something, uh, you know, when we think about the long term, the big challenges are basically that and, and, and pensions. You know, so I think there's no point trying to compare how big they are, but they're both on the same sorts of scales. So, um, so it is a really big issue, and it does need to be resolved. Very quickly, and I think you know when we take some short-term decisions, we shouldn't remember these long-term. We shouldn't forget about these long-term decisions either. You know, money that we might be thinking about, and what can we do in the next budget? There's definitely, it's definitely going to be needed for climate change in the next couple of years. So we need to think about that. Good as we move towards the end, maybe on a on a happier note, or at least a happier note for the moment, uh, corporation tax receipts, of course, almost constantly in the news, um, are are quite staggering uh, relative to, to other countries, per capita, whatever way you want to cut it. Um, but there is concern about concentration risk. You know, should we really be, you, you only become dependent on something if you allow yourself. You know, if, if it was decided that most of these are windfall taxes and are put to one side to pay for these longer term challenges, then really there's no concentr concentration risk evaporates because you're not dependent on the money, you put it away uh, for use later on. Um, any thoughts on the sort of now north of 20 billion annual revenues from corporation tax? What chunk of that, what percentage of that is, would, could be called windfall? So, so, so you're exactly right in your analysis, fit, which is if we don't really spend it, um, it, it is a risk for the public finances in the sense, for example, it's one of the things that's driving our net debt position down. So if it was to stop you know, net debt would go down at a slower rate, but it wouldn't affect our date. You know, we'd be worse off, but it wouldn't affect our day-to-day -day, um, position. Of course, what would affect that is if we did spend it, and we'd really be on a roller coaster then, as so we wouldn't know what's going to happen. And it's not just the concentration risk; that's a big factor. We've got thirty percent of companies paying, of three companies paying thirty percent of it on a really consistent basis. It's also the fact it's quite concentrated by sector. Obviously, digital and pharma are probably good sectors to be in, but doesn't mean they're always going to go up. And of course, we're really subject to international policy risks as well that we don't control. And now you can take different views as to how likely they are to materialize, but you know, we just don't control that, right? Um, so, so it's it's really it's it's a whole set of risks, uh, many of which you know individually maybe aren't so high, but just collectively means we we you know we mustn't spend it, we mustn't be in that position where we're reliant on it for day-to-day spending. In terms of how much of it's a windfall, it, you know, it's really hard to know, right? And it really comes down to your view of the uh, of the risks in a sense but you know the measure that we in the department of finance uses basically goes back to 2014 2015 when Ireland was already actually getting quite a lot of corporation tax money by international standards but far less than it is today so it's the amount has doubled in cash terms since 2019 uh to last year right and it may well be higher this year um so all of that you know and that amounts to about three percent of of national income at this point um so uh so it's it's that that excess measure that we use is about um, you know is, is is more is getting on for half of the half of the total at this point. But it also but it also means actually that some of the other money that we're getting, even if you take that out, 
our corporation tax receipts are still quite high by international comparison. Um, and, and most of that money is coming from multinationals as well. So we're in a, you know, it, at the point where we have a underlying balance, which means that there will be a headline surplus because of the, the excess part and another part, we still will be benefiting to a degree from the corporation tax money. So we'll be spending some of it, but not all of it is the, uh, is the logic of it. And I think one thing that's very important in this context is we, traditionally, I think we thought about it as a fiscal sustainability risk. So if we were to spend this money or, you know, or we were to lock it into long-term commitments, if it disappeared, we'd then have a big deficit. But the other constraint that's, I think, perhaps becoming more obvious is, is the impact is the sort of capacity constraints of the economy. If we were to spend this money, which is essentially coming from international profits of these companies, if we were to pump that into the economy, that would really add to overheating, uh, something that's in the economics professions known as Dutch disease, but it's essentially where you put too much money into the economy and, and supply constraints get too tight and it distorts the economy. So I think of that that's almost a bigger issue at this point, uh, avoiding the risk of, 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 of doing that. We have to be really careful about that kind of dynamic. Usually when you know, if the government spends money, there's actually tax money coming from someone else in Ireland on the other side. So in terms of demand, those things aren't going to balance out exactly, but at least there's some counterpart. But in this case, there's no counterpart. Counterpart is in whatever part of the world the money comes from. So we've got to be really careful about how we feed in that money. Um, An important point in relation to, to overheating. Uh, um, and also, I should note that people who haven't read your report, you, you, you folks also focus on the upside risks in terms of revenues coming in from corporations, particularly from EU level fines, yeah. some of which have been absolutely enormous. And of course, there's one particular case outstanding for a long time, uh, north of 10 billion. Uh, and we, it's still unclear exactly how that will be resolved. But as, as, as you guys point out, there's, there's an upside risk in terms of the amount of money flowing into those corporations because of EU level fines, which all flow into Irish coffers uh, if they uh, are actually paid. With that, Sebastian, could I thank you for, uh, for giving us your time today? Uh, we, we appreciate it very much and uh, look forward to uh, having, I don't think we've had you in person at, at the Institute before. So, um, yeah, well, let's uh, let's remedy that at some point before too long. I'd love to do that. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot. Have a good afternoon, everyone.